Thanks for listening to the podcast from Gary Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Wilson, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. We're in part three of our series, Rediscover Christmas. And today we're going to be talking about rediscover the worship, rediscover the worship. What does it really mean to worship the one born king, the true king? And what is worship, by the way, anyway? It's whatever you value or love the most. It's whatever you put in first place in your life. It's where you spend your, your time, your, your talent, and your treasure the most with the most focus. It's the greatest source of significance and security for you. That's worship. It's whatever you ascribe the greatest value and worth to. Tim Keller says that worship is pulling our affections off our idols and putting them on God. In other words, we're going to worship something from, from dinosaurs to dandelions. Humans are the only ones who worship. We're built for worship. God made us that way. But, but sin causes us to worship wrong things. And so there's a battle for our worship, especially at Christmas. Ironically, you would think at the time of the year when we would really be able to focus our worship, there's a battle for our worship, a war for our worship. We're tempted to put our affections and our love on something other than Jesus because our affections tend to go towards material things and spending money and these kinds of things that create so much anxiety in our lives. Because after all, what's happened to Christmas is Christmas has become big business, big business. According to Forbes magazine, as well as being the most important day on the Christian calendar, it's become the most important day on the financial calendar. Retailers in America can expect to make over $1 trillion this year at Christmas. According to one uh, report, that's over 25%, one quarter of their annual profits are made between Thanksgiving Day and Christmas Day. I used to work retail for, for 12 years before I was a pastor. We knew that 40% of our bottom line came in in the Christmas season. So, so Christmas has become a big business. It hasn't always been this way, but that's what it's become. Don't you feel the tension don't you feel the pull to somehow create the perfect Christmas? If you're a parent with little kids, you're like, I just want to be, I want it to be the perfect Christmas. And so uh, all during the year, you've probably been trying to do your best to watch your budget and to, to put money away in savings. And, but then something happens like the day after Christmas. The day after Christmas, we have Black Friday and then we have Cyber Monday and we just go, woohoo! <laughs> and we just blow our whole budget because we somehow think, this will make me happy. This will make it better. And so we end up being tempted to spend, spend, spend on things that don't really bring joy. They don't really bring happiness. How can we pull our affections off of this crazy, chaotic season and put them where they really belong so that we worship what really matters? Well, in the book of Matthew, chapter 2, We'll read about the story of the birth of Jesus and how he was born in the middle of really a, a political backdrop of the times. That there were, there were two kings in this story. There was the one political king, King Herod, and then there was the one born king, King Jesus. And how there's a pull for all of us, even all the way back to that day, to either worship the worldly king or the true king. And I believe as we look at the scripture today, we'll see three steps on how to rediscover our worship of the true king. So let's look at Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, 
Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. We're looking for three steps on how to discover the worship that belongs to Jesus. Here's the first step. We can rediscover the worship by recognizing the battle for our worship, that there's a battle for what we'll give first place in our lives. I want you to notice the word worship. It's in our text today three times. Therefore, we're going to unpack it in its three places. The first three verses we want to unpack, that occurrence of the word worship in verse 2. In verse 2, we see why the wise men came to Jerusalem. They came searching for the one born king. Let's look at it again. Verse 2, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So they came to Jerusalem, probably thinking that, listen, if there's a king born in Israel, he ought to be in a palace. He ought to be in Jerusalem, the capital city. And so when they get there, they find out he's not there. Instead, they find in his place the false king, King Herod. Uh, king Herod was not the one born king. And so we see uh, here that they came looking for the one born king. Now, when they came in and announced this, Herod, it says in verse 3, the king heard this and he was troubled. In other words, he was agitated. He was spooked. This, this, I mean, this King Herod, we have to understand who he was. He was called Herod the Great because he had uh, built so many uh, grand structures. Uh, Caesarea by the sea, he named after Caesar Augustus. And, and he had supersized the Temple Mount. Uh, he, he was one who had built great works, and so they called him Herod the Great, but he wasn't great morally. In fact, he was a paranoid old man. As, as he got older, he got more and more paranoid. Uh, he was brought into power in 37 B.C. He was only half Jewish and half Idumean, which meant he was really from the land of Edom. He wasn't one that was even... Uh, qualified to be the king, but because he had learned uh, to be politically uh, wise, he had, he had come under uh, Augustus Caesar as a client ruler in 37 B.C. And so he had found his way, and he was over all of the Judean province under uh, Caesar Augustus. 
But his, as, as he got older, he got more and more paranoid. And anybody that threatened his throne, he would kill him. It didn't matter if it was a son or a wife. He would kill him. He killed a couple of his sons that he was worried about. And so Caesar Augustus uttered the famous pun, I'd rather be Herod's hus than his huias, which in the Greek is translated, I'd rather be Herod's pig than his son, because Herod was notorious for being willing to kill. So, but now he's stirred up. He's stirred up because these, these magi, which is the Greek, the Greek word is magoi, these wise men, it's translated here. The, they came from the, from the east. Where did they come from? Well, the scripture doesn't say exactly, but probably from Persia. Magoi is a Persian word. And it would make sense that they would come from Persia because centuries before this, the Jews had been uh, carried off into captivity by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And then some 70 years later, the Persians under King Cyrus had overthrown king, uh, the king of Babylon and now he carried the Jews over to his place. And so we see people like Daniel, the wise man, the, the Hebrew prophet Daniel, who was under King Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, but now he's carried off to Persia under Cyrus and then King Darius of Persia. Now why am I telling you this whole backstory? Because it shows how the Persians would have had access to the Hebrew scriptures and would have had, would have had the wise men of, 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 of the Jewish wise men would have been part of their background. And so they would have known the Hebrew scriptures. So when they saw this star arise, they thought, wait a minute, there was something in the Jewish Bible about a king that would be announced by a star. And so they said, when the star rose, we come looking for his star, the star of the one born king. Now, what are they talking about here? What are, what are these wise men looking for? If you look in the book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17, you'll see there was a prophet ironically from another Gentile dude, because these Persians are Gentiles. The Jews don't even recognize their own king. Here come these guys, and there's another prophet. His name was Balaam. If you don't remember who Balaam was, he was the guy with the talking donkey back there, okay, back in the book of, of Judges. And so Balaam is the one who, who, every time he would try to prophesy a curse on Israel, God would cause him to, pro to prophesy a blessing. And here he prophesies something about the coming Messiah. He says, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. And so just imagine this. Here are these Persian wise men, these magi, and they were students of the heavens and of the stars, and I believe also students of the Hebrew Scriptures. And they put it together. They saw this star arise, and from their perspective, it's, it's rising west of them, and so they start making plans to make the trek. Now, the Scripture doesn't tell you how many magi there were. What's the tradition? How many wise men were there according to tradition? Three, right? Where do they get the number three? Probably from the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's probably, probably where the idea of three comes from, but it's not in the Scripture anywhere. I think it would be more likely to be 30 than three because it caused quite a stir in Jerusalem and a caravan traveling from a far distance from Persia. Three guys would have never made it with all that gold, frankincense, and myrrh across that, that uh that land that was known for robbers and pirates and that kind of thing. I think it was a caravan of people. And when they came into Jerusalem, it caused quite a stir to the point where they were invited into the palace to talk to the king. 
I don't know how many it was. The Bible doesn't say, but, but I believe it was enough to cause a stir. And so we see this, and we see that there was a battle for the worship. Will, will, will they worship all the lights and glory and riches and the big great king on his throne in Jerusalem? Or will they continue to look for the one born king? That's the, the battle here. In the book of Luke, we read Jesus saying this. It says, No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The word mammon has the idea of money and material possessions. It's a word that describes worldly wealth. You can't worship both. And that's the temptation every Christmas, isn't it? Not just at Christmas, but all year long. Have you ever gone on Amazon? You're like, okay, I'm looking at something. I'm, th- I'm pricing something. Maybe you went to Walmart.com, then you went to Amazon, and you were kind of pricing some things. And then you thought, okay, and, and you just kind of hadn't bought anything yet, just kind of thinking about it. And then you go over to a social media site like Facebook, and the first ad that pops up is the very thing that you were looking for. There's some, kind of, there's some kind of algorithm going on in the background right there where there's something out there. Remember the big business? Always trying to go, you need this. You must buy this. You don't see me in the background, but I'm you know, like that. And so there's this, this warfare constantly trying to get you to spend your thought life, like, like your time, your talent, and your treasure, worshiping Herod, the false king, worshiping the false king, the worldly king, rather than the true king who wasn't born in a palace, but in a humble stable. That's the way God sent his son. We always have this temptation, this battle for our worship. In the book of 1 John, it talks about this, uh, do not love the world or the things in the world. And We could say it like this, do not worship. Love and worship are intertwined. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Where where are you putting your worship? Where are you putting? And so for the believer, we pull our worship off of our idols, off of those temporary worldly things, and we put them on Jesus. The battle of for worship began even before the earth was formed. Did you know that? The battle for our worship began all the way back there with an angel named Lucifer, whose name means son of the morning. And Lucifer said, I will be like the Most High God. Isaiah reports this before time story. And he was cast down from heaven along with a third of the angelic host because he decided to worship self. See, that's a real mark of the modern culture, is to worship self above God. And so it began with Satan. But Satan wasn't finished. Then he crawled up in the Garden of Eden, and there was Adam and Eve. And he says to Eve, he goes, look, look at this, look at this fruit. You know, if you eat it, you'll become wise like God. Your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God. It's the same temptation. You can worship yourself. You can have what you want. You can have like the advertisement said, you can have it your way, like that. And that's really the attitude of sin, isn't it? Sin begins with an attitude of the heart that says, I want it my way rather than God's way. And so that 
temptation for wrong worship began even before the earth was formed. And then it continues. It was the reason for the fall of Adam and Eve and for the fall of mankind. And then in the book of Romans chapter 1, we see that Paul says, he says this, he goes, that instead of worshiping the Creator, we've lowered our eyes to worship the creation and we've made idols of, of, of creeping things and animals and of the earth. And so we've, we've lowered ourselves in worship. There's a battle for our worship. There's a war going on for wor- what you will worship. And by humans, we're going to worship something. And we want to fill that in. I think of what uh, has been quoted of Pascal. He says, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the soul of every man that can only be filled by the person of Jesus Christ. There's a hole in our soul. We're going to put something in it, but nothing fits except Christ Jesus. We were made for Him. Will you recognize the battle for your worship? That's the first step. There's a battle. Now, here's the second step. Overcome the temptation to spend our worship wrongly. Overcome. So there's a battle, recognize it, and then overcome your temptation to worship wrongly, to worship the wrong king. Now, we've, we've covered the first three verses. We're on verses 4 through 8 now. And so we know that Herod is troubled and all Jerusalem with him because this idea of one being born king could, could upend the whole apple cart. I mean, this, this is a situation. But the first thing that, that Herod inquires of, he brings in the scribes and the priests, the experts on the Old Testament, and he says, hey, so by the way, where was that one born king supposed to be born? Where was the Christ to be born. The word Christ is Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. The Hebrew version of that same word is Messiah. Where was the Messiah to be born? And they, they, they didn't have to think about it. They're like, we, everybody knows that. Come on, come on, King Herod, you should know this. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's, he's in the line of David. He's going to be born in the city of David. Later, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And it makes sense that the bread of life will be born in the uh, the bread of bread, uh, the, yeah, the bread of life will be born in the house of bread. Bethlehem, that's in Hebrew means Bethlehem, house of bread. It's the bread house. Of course, the bread of life will be born in the bread, in the bread house, Bethlehem. And, and so he's being born in the city of David. And they quoted it to him, verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means, least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They're quoting Micah 5.2 who wrote centuries before Jesus came. So they knew what city he would be born in. This is one of 300, over 300 messianic prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. This is just one of them. And they knew it. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so they announced that uh, to, the, to the wise men, to the, to the magi. And so they're ready to move out. Now notice what he does next. Verse 7. King Herod, the false king. He summons the wise men secretly. Now, already you know this is no good. This is not a good situation. He, okay, everybody leave, you know, leave the room. Okay, come here, guys. Secretly, let's talk. And he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Now, why does he want to know that? We don't know here yet, and we don't know at this point in the story what they told him. But we can find out later in the chapter what they told him. Because if we go to verse 16, we find out that they told him the star appeared about two years ago. Now, how, how do we know that? And why did he meet with them secretly? It's because he said, it's the second appearance of the word worship here. He said in verse 8, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Except his idea for worship was he wanted to murder 
the one born king. He wanted to kill him. And so what we find in verse 16 is that Herod, when he saw that the Magi didn't come back to Jerusalem, he sent soldiers to the city of Bethlehem and murdered every baby boy under the age of two. That's how we know it was two years before that, and that's how he worked it out. That was his plan all along. That's who Herod is. He hates the idea of giving up his throne. That's how we still are to this day. We don't, want to t- we don't want to give up our throne. We want to say, I sit on my throne, rather than surrendering. And proskuneo is the Hebrew, or excuse me, the Greek word for worship. It means to fall face down, to kiss the floor, as it were, to kiss the feet. Proskuneo means to lie prostrate before the one you worship. We don't want to do that. We, we want to stay on the throne. We don't want to surrender the throne to King Jesus. And Herod doesn't want to do that. In fact, he's willing to kill babies, toddlers, in order to preserve his throne. Uh, you think about this story, and, and there, there's a couple places where you'll, you'll hear the Christmas story most often. Luke chapter 2, which we'll cover on Christmas Eve when we gather again on Christmas Eve, which is the main story that we often read about. That's the, that's the nativity scene story. That's the stable and the, and the crib. Then Matthew chapter 2 is the other story. That's where we get the wise men and King Herod and all that and the star. But there are other places in the Bible. We, we could look at John chapter uh, 1 where the Word became flesh. We could look at Isaiah chapter 9 where we have the titles for unto us is born a, a child, unto us a son is given. But there's a surprising place that you can find the Christmas story that maybe you never thought about that's really similar to what's going on here in this story. And it's in the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Because in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, the word revelation is the Greek word apokalupsis or apokalupso, which means to draw back the curtain. And so uh, the disciple John, the apostle John, was caught up into the heavens in a vision, and, and God drew back the curtain, and he was able to look back across time from the past to the future. And in chapter 12, he sees a woman who is about to give birth, and then he sees a dragon that was cast down from heaven, and a third of the angels were cast down with him. And the dragon positions himself so that he can devour the male child of the woman. That's, that's in Revelation. That's, that's this story. I don't know what your nativity scene has in it. You probably have some shepherds. Oh, oh, maybe you got a mantle over, uh, over your fireplace, and you got some shepherds, and you got the stable, and then on the side you got the magi, the wise men. Does anybody here have a dragon on the shelf? Got a dragon? Well, you wouldn't because that wouldn't be seen in the real world. But in the supernatural, in the spiritual world, where the curtain was drawn back and, and the apostle John was looking at the Christmas story, he saw the dragon that was whispering in Herod's ear, kill him, devour him. Don't, let, don't, let, don't even let him get started because he's going he's to change everything. He's going to make everything. He's going to make everybody worship God again. So don't, and so the, there's a dragon in the story that we can't even see and he's whispering in Herod's ear, but the magi don't listen. They go ahead and they move forward. In the book of 1 Timothy, it talks about how we can be tempted by material things, about how believers can be tempted. It says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith 
and pierce themselves with many pangs. You see, when we're tempted to put our worship on wrong things, and we can do this even as believers, we say we worship the true king, but then we're pulled, and so we worship our idols. When we do this, we hurt ourselves because that worship is not from God. How can we overcome it? Well, the book of 1 John talks about how we can overcome this temptation. For anyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. We're made to be overcomers. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You know how you overcome the temptation to spend your worship wrongly? By putting Jesus on the throne of your life. That's how you do it. And you you have to just keep doing it because you just never know how your idols creep back in and how you end up putting yourself back on the throne again if you don't watch out. And so we can overcome. Remember how I said that, that Satan tempted Adam and Eve and how even before the world was formed, he was saying that uh, he desired to worship himself. Well, he continued when he tried to tempt Jesus. We see this in Matthew chapter 4, that first of all, he tempts him for his desire. He says, you've been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Aren't you hungry? If you're, if you're hungry, you, you have the power. Go ahead and turn the stones into bread. And Jesus answers with scripture from Deuteronomy 4, 4. And he says, man does not live by bread bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Satan goes, okay. So then he decides he can't tempt him with his desire, so he tempts him with his identity. He says, if you're really the son of God, prove it by jumping down off the quarter of this temple and and prove it, doesn't the scripture also say that the angels will will save you and, and, and prevent you from being killed? And he goes, yeah, but the scripture says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And he overcomes his temptation against his identity. These are the the same temptations. The devil's got the same bag of tricks. He tempts your identity and tells you to be something that you're not. Something that's not true, and you embrace it, and then you worship self. And then the third one was, he said, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all that your your eyes can see. I'll I'll, I'll make you king of the world. Imagine trying to trick Jesus with that one when he knew he was the one born king. He says to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so then Satan departed from him, and the scripture says, And then the angels came and ministered to Jesus. If you want the angels, you've got to put Satan out of your life and put Jesus on the throne. How will you spend your worship of Jesus? I was just thinking about this story of the babe in the manger and how God could have come any way. He could have have come in any way. In fact, he could have said, when he's the word made flesh, when he became flesh, why didn't he just come as a man and skip over that hardship of having to be a teenager? I mean, like, like being born of a woman and having to diminish himself to the point where he depended on his mother, Mary, to to care for him. Why, Why would the Son of God come in this humble way so that he could become one of us and experience every detail as we experience all the hardships and temptations yet without sin. That's how he came. But he came as a baby. He came in the smallest way possible, born not in a palace but in a stable. So if I think about this, if I want to pull my worship off of these great things and instead of putting all of my worship on the bright lights in the palace of Jerusalem and move it to the stable and the crib and the baby, one way might be to do those kinds of services that involve children. Just just let me think this through with you for a second. Worship's not just 
It is singing along with the worship team. Yeah, that's worship. But that's just that much of worship. That's that much. Because there's another Greek word for worship besides proskuneo, which means to fall down on your face before the Lord. There's latreia, which means to serve. It's also translated worship, but sometimes to serve. And the idea of worship could mean, mom or dad, it could be changing your baby's dirty diaper. It could be getting up at 2 a.m. for a feeding. Now, it might not feel like worship, like, woohoo! But you could get up with thanksgiving and say, Lord, thank you for a baby that can cry. Thank you for a baby that's hungry. Thank you, thank you, Lord, that I have a provision to provide a diaper and a house and a crib. And so, so then you begin, everything you do becomes worship. Because you put Jesus on the throne of your life. And so, so there's, there's the mom or dad that goes to work. And you're like, oh, i got to get up. i got to go to the daily grind. No, you don't. You're getting up to worship. Because whatever you do, you do not as unto men, but as unto the Lord, it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, do it unto the Lord and do it with all your heart, all your worship. So then going to work tomorrow morning can be worship if you do it for the Lord. It's whatever you offer to the Lord is worship. How will you spend it? Here are some suggestions if you really want to stop thinking of yourself on the throne. Do something little instead of something big. Serve the nurse, serve in the nursery. There's a bunch of little people back there. Do something little. Serve with the children's ministry. Find a single mom that goes to our church that maybe needs somebody to babysit so she can go Christmas shopping or she may need some help in some other way. There might be a single mom that needs some help around the house and so there are some strong men in the, in the church that could help out. There, there might be children in our city that need foster care and, and these kind of things. Just... Just one of the ways that we can pull our, idol, our, our, our worship off of our idols is sometimes to get low. Not to, not to climb high, get low. And this helps. This helps pull the worship off ourselves and our idols and put them on Christ. Well, let's go to the third step. There's a battle for our worship. There's a temptation that we must overcome. And then finally, choosing to worship the true king, Christ Jesus. So we pull our affections and our worship off of our idols, but we've got to put them somewhere. If we don't, they'll default right back to false worship. Put them on the true king, King Jesus. We're in verses 9 through 12 now. And it says, after listening to the king, they went on their way. They're headed towards Bethlehem. Bethlehem's only a two-hour walk south of Jerusalem. It's not far and so they're headed to Bethlehem. They were so close, but maybe the, the bright lights of the city and the palace distracted them. But now, as soon as they get back on track, the star reappears. I don't know where it was, if it was lost in the light, if there was a cloudy day. I don't know what it was, but they see it again. And this star, well, it rose up before them. And it, and it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, there have been many who, uh, scientists throughout the years who have tried to, to identify this star. Some have said there was a comet that, that, that was a new comet that, that appeared along about 3 B.C., uh, somewhere close to the birth of Jesus. Some have said it was during that time that there was a, an outstanding and perfect alignment of Jupiter and Saturn over the Middle East, which would have looked like a new bright star occurring. And so there are many who try to come with, with natural explanations, and maybe God did cause some of those things to come into being at a perfect time, but I'm okay if he just produced a supernatural star. Uh, besides, it has some unusual characteristics. It somehow 
appears like right over the house where Jesus lives. It's like God sent a special GPS awareness to the Magi. They, they pull, they're, they're riding their camels. They're like, okay, there's a star, there's a star. And then they hear the star go, you have arrived at your destination. <laughs> like, and they were, what, what, was their, what was their emotional response? It says, it says that they, uh, they were rejoicing exceedingly, this is verse 10, with great joy. You see, when you find the true king, when you find him and you put him on the throne of your heart, there's nothing like that. This is not happiness. Happiness happens because there's a favorable happening on the external world. But joy is found in the exceeding gladness and joy comes from within. It comes from knowing the Lord Jesus. And so they're happy. They're full of great joy. And then verse 11 just ruins our nativity scene. What do you mean, Gary? Why does it ruin? Because it says in going to the house. It doesn't say stable. Uh-oh. Why is this? This is two years later. They didn't stay in the stable for two years. This is about two years later. This is not a baby in a stable. This is not an infant in a stable. This is a toddler in a house. This is, this is two-year-old Jesus. And they pull up here. And, and some years ago, I was preaching this message. And, and my kids, this is a while back when my kids all still lived at home. And I was like, I'm going to mess up your mantle right now. Like, like your, 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 your shepherds, yeah, they need to be there. They need to be Luke chapter 2 right there with the, with the stable and the baby and, and Mary and Joseph and the angel. All that needs to be there. But the, but the magi, the wise men, they're not there yet for two years. And so I, on the way home that day, I, got, I pulled up in the driveway my kids uh, rode separately in those days because we were portable and, and uh, I would have to stick around to tear down everything and pack it up in the trailer. And so I pull up in the driveway and I see my Magi lined up on the railing of my deck. And I come in the house, who, who, who's the joker? Who, who's the person that put the Magi? I said, well, Dad, you said it's going to take them two years to get here. <laughs> we were just trying to make it you know, accurate to the Scripture. And so they, they, we find the third version of the word worship here, the, the third occurrence in verse 11. It says, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down before him. There's that word, that idea of worship means to lower yourself. You, they fell down and they worshiped him. And you know what else worship always includes? It includes opening their treasures and offering their gifts. It always includes offering. It always includes saying, you know what, I'm going to give God the first part of my time, talent, and treasure. I, you know, you can tell a lot about a person by looking at two books, their date book and their checkbook. But you can tell who, what they put first and who they put first. And so, so they said, you know, we're going to open. And, they, and they, they traveled from a great distance with these expensive gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they open them up and they present them there before a little toddler Jesus. Can you see him there with Mary and Joseph? And they begin to present them, and they bow down, and they, they, they lay on their faces before him. And gold is, you know, gold has been noted as a, as a gift fit for a king, for a lion of Judah. And then frankincense, well, that's a gift, uh, that's a particular uh, smell, a, a, a particular spice that was part of the recipe for what the priest would use in the temple. And so it's a gift fit for a priest. And then there, was, then there was the gift of myrrh. Now, that's the odd one. That's a really odd gift to bring to a baby shower. Really odd. Odd gift. Because myrrh, well, that was a prime ingredient in uh, taking care of one who had died. It's part of the spices you would use to prepare a body for burial. 
And so why myrrh? Why that one? Because it's a gift fit for a sacrificial lamb. All three are true in Jesus. He's the king, he's the high priest, and he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so they bring these three gifts. And then they were warned in verse 12, don't go back the way you came. They were warned in a dream, don't go back the way you came. Because Herod has got bad ideas. And so they went home another way, having worshipped the true king. You know, worship always involves two kind of moves. One is to recognize what he's worth. You, you give recognition that he's worthy. And then give him what he's worth. You recognize, then you give. They recognized him as the one born, the true king. They recognized him. God revealed it to them. And then they gave him what is worth. They gave him these gifts. They gave him themselves. It says in Joshua chapter 24, Choose today whom you will serve, but as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Have you decided today? What do you give the one who owns everything? What do you give the king of the, of the universe? There might be one thing he doesn't have. You. Perhaps he doesn't have you. You still have self on the throne. You're still deciding who you are and who you belong to. It's about me, 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 me. You're the God of your own life. That's your attitude. And you don't want anything to do with this Jesus because if he comes in and takes the throne of your life, then you have to lie before him face down and say, you're God and I'm not. That would be the best gift you could give him this Christmas. What do you give the one who owns everything? He might not have you because you've never given your life to him. Have you given your life to Jesus? Have you chosen to give your life? It says in Romans chapter 12, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. There's a battle for your worship. There's a temptation to spend your worship wrongly. But you can put Jesus on the throne of your life and know exceeding joy and gladness. How will you respond today? How will you respond to King Jesus? Will you worship Him? Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the Christmas story afresh today. And Lord, I pray for that person that's here today that's never given their life to You. Would You do it right now, my friend? Would You say, Lord Jesus, I believe in You. I believe You died on the cross for my sins, that You were raised from the grave, and that You live today. Come and live in me. Forgive me of my sin and make me the kind of person you want me to be. Make me a child of God. I want you as my Lord and Savior. I give my life to you. If you're praying that prayer, believing he'll save you and make you a child of God. Forgive you of your sins. Others are here today and you're a believer in Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus. But you recognize the temptation during this season to, to put your worship where it doesn't belong. To worship wrongly. Right now, would you just confess that and say, Lord, forgive me. I've been anxious and I've lacked, I haven't had peace this Christmas because I've been focusing on wrong things. Lord, help me to pull my affection and my attention off of these things and to put them on Jesus. Lord, I pray it now in Jesus' name. Amen.